shaped history and moved heaven and earth so that we might be saved. This is only done through the atonement, that word which is very easy to break down. It means at one meant, the state of being at one with God, which was broken in the garden, but which will be restored through the blood of Christ. So today we transition. Next week we will begin, indeed, with the Gospel of Luke. We're also going to start something new next week after the morning service. While the children are singing, if you have children that are singing after church, or if you just want to hang out, we'll spend 20 or 30 minutes discussing uh, together as a group the, the passage that was used for the sermon that morning, so that if you'd be interested in a little more, a little deeper, if some questions rise up while you're hearing the message, you'll have the opportunity to do that starting next week. But today we're going to transition looking at the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you'll turn to the first page of the New Testament, chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew, revisiting something that we visited about a year ago. Matthew, one of the four Gospels, Gospel meaning good news, four books of the good news of the life of Jesus Christ. Some ask why we have four Gospels. Well, initially, there were, they were written to four different audiences. I would say each of them had two audiences, us being one. But the Gospel of Luke, which is the most detailed, the most logical, was commissioned by Theophilus to Luke, a physician, to go and study and write, which he wrote Luke and the book of Acts. But they are the most logically written, most detailed, and they were written to a Greek audience, which if you think of the Greeks at that time and you think of the philosophers and, and, and their discussions and, and their figuring things out, and that's why Luke was written that way. And the Gospel of John was written to new believers. And even today at large evangelism events. Billy Graham's been doing it for decades. When people come forward and accept Christ, they're given a copy of the Gospel of John. And Mark, neither Mark nor John have the birth stories of Christ. Mark is the most active. There are more verbs or action words per section than any place else, I think, probably in Scripture. Mark was written to the Jews in Rome. And you think of the Roman culture at that time with, with the games and all the things that were going on in Rome. So, so um, Mark was written with that very specific goal in mind. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Matthew was written to the Jews. Nobody else would have cared about this very specific type of genealogy. But the Jews would have. Luke gives a genealogy, but again, that was part of his detailed uh, analysis of what had happened, but this starts with the genealogy because it begins by telling the nation of Israel, this is the one you were looking for, this is the one that was prophesied. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, 
and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatil, Shelatil the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations were, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. From David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Like I said, about a year ago, we looked at this passage and we we talked about the very specific people that are mentioned here and how they brought us to Jesus. Unexpected people, especially unexpected in a Jewish lineage where women were never mentioned, but they are here. Where non-Jews were never mentioned, but they are here, showing that this is a Savior for all people. But I want to briefly look back at what we have looked at this year and how this is important to bringing us to this place. Again, we began last January. We talked about the story of Adam and Eve and the fall, the presentation of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 where God says, I will put enmity between you and woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise that the Son of Man would one day come and destroy the enemy. Here in the very beginning, we hear about Jesus. Then they were driven out of the garden and enacted by the grace of God, they were prohibited from reaching to the tree of life because they'd been cursed, not just as people, but the entire creation had been cursed. And had they reached for the tree of life and received eternal life without the atonement, they would have been eternally damned. And it's so wonderful to get to Revelation 22 and see what John saw and the river of life flowing from the throne and the tree of life. We went on through Cain and Abel and the the rapid spread of sin and the beginning there of two families that will go throughout Scripture and even today. Two families, the the uh, secular and the sacred. We saw God's covenant with Noah. The call of Abraham and Abraham blessed to be a blessing. Again, we saw Jesus in this, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. And in Abraham and Isaac, remember the story where he was told to go and sacrifice Isaac. And in that story, we saw the first example of substitutionary atonement. 
as he was ready to sacrifice his only son. And God provided the sacrifice. Then Isaac's boys, Jacob and Esau, and their choices, and again, two families. The nation of Israel emerged off into Egypt, into slavery. But God is ever faithful and provided a deliverer. But before they left Egypt, we had this tremendous story of the Passover. And again, we see the Christ in the Passover. Those who would come under the blood of the Lamb would be passed over in God's judgment as God judged the land. But those under the blood of that perfect, spotless Lamb were passed by. We saw Moses deliver the people out of Egypt. And their constant complaining, their constant disobedience, their refusal to enter the promised land. And yet God remained faithful. But God also judged. If you remember, none but the four men, none that left Egypt, lived to enter the promised land because of their refusal. We saw the building of the tabernacle and then the temple. And inside the mercy seat, the place where God meets man. We saw God bring judges to his people in this cycle of their unfaithfulness and God's ever-faithfulness and bringing them back and then they would go back into sin. We saw the story of Ruth. One, outside of God's people, right? And yet extraordinarily faithful. Ruth and Naomi. And we saw in that story the great faithfulness in, a, in one life and in one family, but also how that one life and that one family showed eternal faithfulness as Ruth married Obed and they gave birth to Jesse and Jesse gave birth to King David. And then David shows up, right? This young boy who was anointed to be king. This man after God's own heart. We see him going to the battle lines and completely incensed because there was one standing on the other side of the valley defying the army of the living God. And the army which shook in fear watched this young boy with nothing but a sling and five stones secure victory in the name of God. We saw Saul, the king, persecute David. And David's eventual rise to king himself and his tremendous failure with Bathsheba but then his return to God, crying out, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. We moved on into Isaiah and saw Isaiah's vision of God on the throne, of Jesus on the throne, and his understanding of how completely unworthy he was to even see that, and how an angel flew to him with a live coal and singed his lips. What a contrast this is to when we see John having his vision in Revelation and the angel coming to him as John is weeping because no one can open the seal. But the angel comes to him not to singe his lips, but to put his arm around him and say, everything is okay. Because John and Isaiah lived on different sides of Calvary. We heard the story of Hosea a few weeks ago. An unfaithful man called, or a faithful man called to marry an unfaithful woman, and in that we saw the image of a faithful God. 
and his unfaithful people. And then last week, Jim Dorado was here and brought you the very difficult message from Malachi that God will judge. So I'm hoping that we see a composite picture here of God working toward the atonement, working out our atonement, again, shaping history so that you might be saved. You know, I really appreciated all the cards and stuff that I got last month, cards that came in the mail and cards that were left in the box back here. Because, you know, a card, man, somebody went out and they were thinking of you for a moment. They got, and they, and they, they purchased something for you. And that's special. I think most people feel that way when they get a card. But beloved, how do you feel that the God of the universe has never stopped thinking about you from the moment of creation until now? And he purchased something for you with the blood of his son. That should move all of who you are. Well, as we, as we close out this section of the Old Testament, but not really closing it out, but moving on to the New Testament. There's, there's four things that I want to say that I've hoped that we've learned. One is that God is a God of relationships. The second is that we broke that relationship with sin. The third thing is that God taught his people and expected them to teach others the way back through specific practices that he created. And four, that the whole Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, everything from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi, points us to Jesus. Everything. So first, God is a God of relationships. The covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenants with Abraham, all the covenants the covenantal language, the covenantal framework. All of that language is language of love. Some of it sounds really harsh, and the things that they did, they actually called it cutting a covenant. They would sometimes take the animal that was to be sacrificed and cut it in half, and the two parties would walk through. And the idea being, may this happen to me, should I break this covenant? Those were covenants with one another. But the covenant that God made with us, we have nothing to offer God. He has life that he offers us. God is a God of relationship, and his covenants show that. His promise to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through him, meaning Jesus, that from the line of Abraham would come Jesus, but not just for his people, for all people. And that brings us to the, the other part of relationship. Are those representative people? God placed representative people to show everyone else what he looks like. The nation of Israel were never supposed to be a chosen people who were, who were set apart and, and kind of in some monastery somewhere, keeping God to themselves. But they were always supposed to be going out to the rest of the world, telling people about who God is. They weren't really good at that. And the church has that role today. And I think we need to sometimes 
ask ourselves how we are doing with that. But God always sent people to represent himself. He sent the judges, he sent kings, and then he sent prophets to speak his word because he is a God of relationships. And the second thing, we, we broke that relationship with sin. And that began in the garden. And boy, you could really pick that passage apart. We always think the first sin was when Eve took the fruit, but I think there was a lot of stuff we could pick out of sin before that. I think her standing there and listening to the serpent twist the word of God was sinful. I think Adam standing there with his hands in his pockets and his mouth shut was extraordinarily sinful. But in that, the whole world was cursed. And we cannot cross that divide. We cannot get over that sin ourselves. However you look at it, as a, as a great chasm, as a great wall, whatever it is, there's something that separates us from God, and that's called sin. And sin brings the anger of God and the judgment of God. And that's not popular very much to talk about these days, but the Old Testament God did not change when the New Testament was written. God is God never changing. God's judgment is part of God's love. The assumption that is made that anger is somehow an ungodly attribute is because we look at God's anger through the filter of what makes us mad. We get mad when things don't go our way. God gets angry when we do things to hurt ourselves that would keep us from him. Judgment for sin has existed, it does exist, and it will exist until the final judgment. So the relationship with God is broken because of sin. And then God created practices and places to teach us, to teach his people how to get past that sin. God put things in place. These were never metaphors. Or these weren't things that took place and then God looked back and said, oh, we could use that to teach them about this. No, God taught people from the beginning. He created the tabernacle, then the temple. And inside the temple was the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, the place where God met man. He created the priests and the high priests and the sacrifices. What was the temple for? The temple was to gather God's people together, to show that we're supposed to gather as God's people in the name of God, and God is close. But he's in a place that they couldn't go to. When God came and went into that holy of holies, they couldn't go in. They knew God was present. They knew he was close. They knew he was their God, and that they were his people. But they could not go in. There was a veil that represented on one side the holiness of God, on the other side the complete unholiness of humankind. There was a barrier. And again, that's sin that keeps us from the purest communion with God. So what did he do? He taught us that we needed a representative. He created the order of priests, 
which were to show people the faithfulness of God and what it meant to serve God. But he created the office of high priest. So one person, once in their life, for one year served as the high priest to teach the people. You need someone who can go to God for you because you're a sinful people. You need someone that can go in. So the office of high priest was created as a representative so that could go behind the veil. But he could only go after what? After the sacrifice was made. He could only go after the sacrifice was made. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood had to be shed. The sacrifice had to be made so that the high priest, the representative, after the sacrifice, after the shedding of the blood, the high priest could then go past the veil and into the presence of God. So I hope you're beginning to see in this how the whole Old Testament points to Christ. I'd like to sit down right now and read the entire book of Hebrews. We won't, but I'd like to sit down and read the whole book of Hebrews to you. The book of Romans and the book of Hebrews are actually commentaries on the Old Testament. If you ever want to understand the Old Testament better, read Romans and read Hebrews. All this was meant to teach people, the temple, the, the, the holy of holies, the representative of the priest and the sacrifice, to show us one was coming. Jesus was coming. So we get Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He comes, right? They didn't see it yet, but they should have seen it in what God was teaching them. In his flesh, at the incarnation, Jesus quite literally was God with man. Brought about by the Holy Spirit in Mary. Literally, Jesus, fully God, fully man, son of God, son of man. We don't need a temple anymore. We don't need to make sacrifices anymore. Jesus is the meeting place. Jesus is the place where God meets man. Both literally in the flesh and literally in the spirit. Jesus is the place where God meets man. I mean, okay, briefly in Hebrews. Hebrews 7, I think, verse 11, verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest? You hear that? The old priesthood was for teaching, but it was never to bring about perfection. For if it had been, they wouldn't have needed, we wouldn't have needed another Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one had ever served at the altar. How about over to verse 21? But this one, 
this one from another tribe, this Jesus, this great high priest, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It ain't practice anymore. It ain't teaching anymore. This is the reality of it. Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest at the good, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, and that tent refers to the tabernacle or the temple, but now it refers to the body of Christ. The greater, greater more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the, goats of blo- or if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Jesus means something. That's not just a term. It's not just a thing we say in church or maybe sing about in a song. I was, I've been washed in the blood. This is everything. And all that stuff that we've been talking about in the Old Testament was to point people to Jesus, their one and only Savior. No other options. And, and we're... You know, a society that loves our options, right? You've heard me joke about this before, and it, it is kind of funny in one sense that, you know, used to there was Crest and Colgate. Now there's like a thousand kinds of, I get paralyzed in the toothpaste aisle. You know, McDonald's, burger and fries, now they've got, you know, 8,000 things and baristas and all this other stuff, you know. And we've become accustomed to options. And, and sometimes that's good, but sometimes that leads us to think, well, I should have a choice in everything. You have no choice. If you want eternal life, it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Only through the blood of Christ. And that's why we've been talking about this all these months, to see that it's not just this one thing, but it is all of history shaped for your salvation. All of history. God has manipulated all of history so that you might be saved. To me, there's just nothing more phenomenal than that. How about Hebrews 10? I'll stop after this. 9 and 10. Hebrews 10, verses 9 and 10. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order, To establish the second. In other words, all that old stuff is gone. So, you know, people get hung up with what's on the Temple Mount now and are are we going to have to rebuild the temple before? What's it say? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? Oh, yeah, there's a, you know, the Jews worship here and we worship over there. What did Jesus say? No, there's a time coming when the place doesn't matter. We worship in spirit and in truth. 
And then it goes on here to say, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. So so what the heck does that have to do with Matthew 1? Well, if you flip back to Matthew 1 and you see this lineage coming to Jesus, it does one thing. It does proof. It's a proof text to show the nation of Israel that Jesus was the one. It does that. But it also speaks to us. Not only did he fulfill all the prophecies and and all that, he was all that they ever thought he would be. He's the savior of the Jews. He comes from Abraham. He comes from Isaac. He's from the throne of David. But there's more. He's a savior of good guys. You know, Abraham was a pretty good guy. How about good guys that fell? Well, we got David. The entire nation of Israel got him. But look, we have Ruth, the Gentile, right? We have not-so-good people like Rahab, the prostitute. Is something keeping you from Jesus in your life? Do you somehow think you're unworthy? Do you you come from a line of kings and think you're too good? Do you come from a line of horse thieves and think you're not good enough? Have you fallen yourself and think you can't come back? Jesus is the Savior for all who will come to him. I think this lineage shows that. It may sound boring when you read it, but the message is not boring. Jesus came to save you. God has moved heaven and earth and history to save you. What are you going to do with that? I'm not entirely sure that when they put all the paragraphs and chapter numbers and stuff, the Bible, they got it right. The Bible, the words in the Bible are inerrant. They're the inspired word of God. And then the other stuff was kind of put in for references. Verse 18 in Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. And it goes on to talk about Mary and Joseph. And it belongs there. But at at minimum, I think it's a transition I think that verse also goes very strongly with all that stuff we were reading. So I won't read all those again, but this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All these people, all those bad people, all the, the, the adultery, the murder. And by the way, you want to... Good piece of testimony that the Bible's true. If you were writing the story and you had the opportunity to put in what you wanted and you were going to show how proud you were, you'd probably leave some of that stuff out. It's just, it's just like at the crucifixion. If, if, if it wasn't true and it was written by a bunch of guys who were trying to show off, I don't think they would have put in the story that they ran away and the women stayed. In first century Palestine, you think that's the way heroes are made? You know, I think the Bible speaks pretty well for itself. But you read through all that. You, you read through the, the, the adultery and the murder. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place that way. Through all that. I, I think this is one place, and I don't like to pick at other people's doctrine and theology, but I think this is a place where our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters really missed the boat. 
they tried to figure out how Mary could be worthy to give birth to Jesus. And so they came up with, just a couple hundred years ago, they came up with this idea of the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was born without sin. That's how she could be worthy to give birth to Savior. There's some logic to that, but it's wrong. Nobody's worthy. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The great message in this is, we don't need to be perfect. God brings the perfection. God brings the perfection to Mary, to David, to Abraham, to me. It's God that brings it. We don't have to have been perfect before we can get God in our life. This is the way the birth of Christ came about. Jesus alone atones for our sin. Jesus alone cleanses us and makes us righteous for him. Are you serious about your love for him? When you consider this, are you serious about your response? You know, we, we want you to come to youth group. We want you to come to Sunday school. We want you to come to church. And we want you to maybe enjoy it a little bit. But we also want to make you uncomfortable. I've sat in 28-degree rainy weather to watch a college football game for three hours. I've stood in line for hours to buy tickets for some event that I want to see. We bring discomfort into our lives all the time, sometimes for leisurely stuff, sometimes for growth. We run an extra mile. We do extra reps in the gym. We watch our diets. Musicians practice scales over and over again. We read. We study for, our, for schoolwork, for our careers. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. There's great benefit in these things. But none of these things are nearly as important as your life in Christ. I think sometimes we need to create a little discomfort in our lives. Sometimes maybe a lot of discomfort in our lives so that we grow in Christ. We, we know, right, that like, like it's the hard work that brings about the good stuff. It's the breaking down of muscle. During the exercise, it causes the muscle to grow afterwards. It's the fingers that get exhausted from practicing the scale or the voices that get exhausted from doing that that bring about the beauty and the music. Dear God, forgive us for how lightly we take the sin that put Jesus on the cross and how lightly we take our response to that. We, we, we have got to wake up, church. We have got to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus through his death and make the great commandment and the great commission the single most important things in our lives, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to go and make disciples. That's it. It's not easy, but it's simple. Those should be the most important things in our life. The atonement, God choosing to make us at one with him again. The way it was supposed to be in the garden before the fall. The way everything was supposed to be. Perfect. God says he can, he's going to make it. He doesn't just say it. He is going to make it like that again. And he's called us to join him. But will we? Will we join him? And if we will, what is our response? To God. Shaping history. 
for our salvation? What is our response to God moving heaven and earth so that we might be saved? Will we put ourselves into some discomfort, whether it's here or whether it's getting up an extra half an hour to read our Bibles, whether it's taking some time and shutting off that 90-second time you've seen that episode of Friends to spend time in prayer? I'll close with this question. What are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow to show that you are one with God? Amen.